Uh, March 28th will be a day you never forget. The Beatles. Now Beatles. on iTunes. <laughs> now iTunes. That's classic music. You're right. That yeah. is. That was, what, 2009-ish, I think? 2010, 2011. Yeah, some, somewhere in that range. It was right. right I, I remember it because it Did was you right forget? when I was starting to... <laughs> It, yeah, cause, yeah, cause never forget it. No, it was right when I was starting to like follow Apple more closely, like like actually reading like tech blogs and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so back then, I wasn't, um, I was an innocent child. So when they put sure. up, when they when they took over the homepage with "This is a day I'll never forget," I was on the oh well, they're going to announce the iPad. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it, was like, it was like one of that. It was one of those, and it was like oh, it's the Beatles and iTunes, and then obviously. A few years down the line, you 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 adjust to the hype train of uh, yeah. how the company works. Yeah, yeah. But but the Beatles, they, they they're in your language though, so you should have a strong appreciation for the Beatles. I like the Beatles. Mm-hmm. That's good. Uh, you could call three, them a classic. You could Apple Music Classical, uh, uh, formerly known as Apple Classical, formerly known as Primephonic. This is the company that Apple bought Primephonic. Um, not this year that we're in. Not last calendar year. But the year before that, and at the end of the year, in like August or so, um, and they promised to have an Apple classical experience uh, to replace Primephonic, which went away in February of last year, so a little over a year ago now. Uh, And and the whole idea there is that Primephonic is a genre-specific music streaming app. Classical music has a whole different um, user interface that's optimized for the way that classical classical music is organized um where you can have the same name of something but in in from different performances different times different etc so uh and and also i think the big thing there that i came across late in in looking at this is that prime phonic did a different payment model for music so whereas you get paid for one play for streaming music a three-minute pop song would be worth the same thing as a three-hour classical performance, which didn't incentivize classical music streaming services to exist. Um, maybe that goes away with Apple being behind it, that it's not as hard to exist when you're Apple. You've already been streaming this stuff anyway. Um, I don't know. But we don't, we don't know if that's changed. Probably, has, probably, probably not the case anymore. But um, Apple Music Classical, that's the name. It's available for pre-order starting today. And it will come out later in the month on March 28th. Kind of weird. With the kind of weird thing. in a few regards. I mean, yeah, we waited so long for this to be announced officially. It lapsed their previously announced time frame of the end of the year. And then in the start of March, they're like, here it is, but it's not actually out yet. It's not out to the end of March. So, well, and some estimations of when this replacement would be available put it at one year ago. And that's kind of what the Primephonic trial for music like mm. to believe as well is they gave you enough time through the end of February and then you needed to pay for Apple Music and and there were mentions not in Apple's press release but in Prime Phonics press release that, that the new replacement for Prime Phonics app would be available um, in early last year early 2022 so add 12 months for all the work it put it took <laughs> to, to create this thing and they now have a it's the first standalone genre app for apple music it's it's not built into the iphone it's through the app store like we've mentioned you can pre-order it today which just means have it installed automatically on march 28th they should just put out for pre-order in december then they can yeah. at least <laughs> kept to their 2022 promise it's yeah a bit random yeah and, but... and let's take let's, let's take a look at it how uh, mm. so, some omissions here uh iphone only <laughs> if you if you if you use an ipad you don't like classical music clearly I get, I get not having the Mac version because you know, the, even with Mac Catalyst, et cetera, and Swift and everything, there's not often uh, you're not often like on par with features for the Mac music experience and, and iPhone and iPad. But to not have an iPad app, huh? Curious. Yeah, because re Catalyst, there was obviously we didn't know what this app was going to look like until literally today when we get to look at four screenshots of it and infer what it is. Um, if they were going for like a wholly new app built from the ground up, then they probably could have done it in like a Catalyst kind of context um, and shipped a Catalyst version at launch and maybe done an iPhone and iPad version at launch at the same time. But looking at the screenshots, it's pretty clearly a stripped down version of the Apple Music app on iOS. 
and, and the Apple Music app on iOS is completely detached from the Music app on the Mac because the Music app on the Mac is not Catalyst or, or it's, a, it's, the, it's the remnants of iTunes, right? So whatever work they do on Apple Music iOS doesn't have any impact on the Mac as it stands today. Maybe in the future they'll change that, but right now iTunes on Mac is, you know, formerly known as iTunes on Mac, Apple Music on Mac is the iTunes codebase. So the Apple Music codebase is completely separate on iOS and what Apple Music Classical looks like based on these screenshots is they've taken Apple Music, the app for iOS, and taken out parts, and that becomes Apple Music Classical, which explains why there's no Mac version because there's you know that would be doing a wholly separate app just for classical music, which would be insane. It's less clear why they took away all the iPad part uh, because obviously Apple Music for iOS has an iPad uh, layout. Yeah, maybe that's the one point one update to Apple Music Classical, the app. Uh, the Perphonic had. An iPad app. They also had an Android app, which which you won't see that on Android. Even though it's Apple Music for Android, which is where most of the code leaks referencing Apple Classical now Apple Music Classical came from, was the Android uh, app for Apple Music. Um, no, no Apple Music Classical for Android, which is less head scratching than than the iPad app. But okay. Um, yeah, if if Apple Music Classical becomes a uh, rave hit, you could imagine them then putting an Android app on the to do list, but. If it's going to be a niche thing, it's probably not worth worth the squeeze. Yeah, and they either had an, a website or or a Mac app, one or the other. Uh, but starting this 1.0 version of Apple Music Classical, iPhone only, not even Apple Watch. So can't, <laughs> you, can't, you can't go for a marathon run and and listen to a third of of a performance of classical music. Yeah, we'll it, see it, how this develops over time in terms of platforms, but I think there's a good chance it's iPhone only forever. <laughs> yeah, what do you think about the look of Apple Music Classical? Because that's kind of the big mystery. Is like we know what will be in it, we know what it will do, but how is Apple going to present this in a way that makes it worthy of being a standalone app and not just the Apple Music app? I mean, my my guess for not being able to use it yet is that the main thing is that it limits search to only this genre. Mm-hmm. Whereas classical is not what comes up first in search unless you're very specific in the Apple Music app. Yeah, so- I think I think the fact that they did a separate application at all, they decided to go down that route, had put in my seated in my mind the idea, okay, this is gonna be significantly different because why would you bother if it's almost the same? But the screenshots we see today are close to the Apple Music experience, which immediately raises questions as why did they need a separate app at all? Like, could they have not just had these slight design tweaks for when you're looking at classical music listings in your library or whatever, or when you search for classical music, it could just take you to this slightly different layout. Because what, what the interface looks like is Apple Music, but with the serif font seen in Apple Books, that's uh, New York, which is like the mm-hmm. Apple equivalent for San Francisco, but for the, for serifs. Um, there's, there's a serif font used all over the place. And it seems like all the titles have more space. So like Apple Music, the music app assumes like average song titles are quite short um and so they're like single lines and you have the artist below but with classical music all these things are a lot longer because it's like piano sata number 14 in c sharp major adiagigo moderato you know they have all these like words just in the names of the tracks so naturally all the titles are a lot longer and if you look at these screenshots for instance in the now playing screenshot the title of the song has two lines to to be there maybe even space for three lines of text whereas if you look at apple music on ios there's only one line there and they they put the artist below um so that seems to be the main design change but the layout the navigation the hierarchy is practically the same like if you look at the it's a tab design just like apple music on ios with the little now playing little bar that sits on the bottom of the tabs the interesting thing is the radio tab is gone um, presumably because they're not going to offer a continuous radio playback for the classical app at least not at launch um, so you have listen now browse library and search and so it's the exact same structure as apple music almost to most people's eyes i think you, they wouldn't even notice the fonts different yeah, um, yeah so it's pretty close to the same experience and then you look at the now playing screenshot and like i said the title text is a bit bigger I think they've got like a an I button that isn't normally there. That probably gives you the... Um, replaces lyrics, by the way. Replaces lyrics, yeah. So the I probably gives you more information about biography and composer because one of the things they stressed and Prophonic stressed was like celebrating all of the people that go into these classical songs, like the composers, the conductors, mm-hmm. you know, all that additional uh, metadata. 
um, and Apple's touting composer biographies, description of key works and stuff. So there's probably like you press the I button, you get a bit more information than you would do in standard Apple Music because you know for pop music or whatever, people don't really care about the the history. But for classical music, there's a heritage there, so that's probably what's going to be exposed when you press those buttons. But otherwise, it looks almost identical to Apple Music. So I'm a I... bit. I'm a bit. I'm, I'm not disappointed because, to be honest, I don't really care about classical music, so it wasn't something I was like chomping at the bit to use. But I, I guess I'm more puzzled why they bothered to do it because it is so similar. It's like, they, does it was it really worth the separate investment um, to make a wholly separate app that now they're going to have to like make all these decisions about whether they're going to use multiple platforms or they're going to keep iterating with features like every time apple music the main app gets a new feature are they then gonna make sure that the apple music classical apps kept in lockstep with it it's it's a lot of um extra overhead that they didn't necessarily need based i mean again maybe maybe when we use the app in the end of march it might make a bit more sense but if you just intuit what we can tell from the screenshots it's like could they really not have just like integrated this into a classical section of the music app, really? Like, you know, the TV app, for all its faults, it has a decent enough way of having, like, entire sub-experiences via channels, right? Like, you know, TV+, Plus, Season+, Pass, all those third-party channels you can buy in there. The music app could have maybe gone for a similar model where you could go into, like, this entirely separate classical section. And they already have, like, sections of classical music in the music app, and that's not going away. So... What was the justification for adding these tiny bits of extra metadata and slightly different layouts in an entirely separate app? Could they have not integrated that only one? That's kind of my first impressions on seeing this thing finally announced for real. I think I think albums are called works, and and songs are called recordings. I can glean that from the screenshots. Uh, and they couldn't have a separate dictionary in this in the main app for when you're looking at classical songs. That was just. <laughs> That's just too too complicated. Instead, they've got to make a wholly separate application. I will say the icon looks pretty nice. The icon's very nice, yeah. Mm. It's a music music note, and it's not just... I mean, the the, the icon for uh, Apple Music is a music note as well, but it's a different different symbol for the classic music uh, app. They say it's made for everyone from beginners to lifelong fans. So, cool. Yeah, and was, like you said, I think you're only going to find... Like, the search will be more refined because it's only... 5 million tracks in there, so it's only the classical music section. Um, they've got exclusive albums. I'm not sure what that actually means. Is, just, is there going to be music in here you can't find in Apple Music? Or is that just them saying exclusive to the Apple, Apple music, music service in general? Yeah, probably. Yeah, not sure about that. They're touting um, that you can obviously get up to high-res lossless audio streaming, which obviously classical music people really do value more. Like, like It's a niche thing, right? And people want lossless, so there you go. Um, and spatial audio support uh, if you want that. And then the crucial thing here is that it doesn't cost anything extra, which would have been the assumption going in, but it was not never confirmed that way. Uh, so now we know for real, you can get Apple Music Classical. It uses the standard Apple Music subscription. Individual, student, family, and Apple One plans all can use Apple Music Classical now too. Uh, if you have the Apple Music voice plan, you are left out of luck. No voice support. You, yeah... Hope you're that incredibly well large intersection of people who have Apple Music voice plan and really care about classical music. Them, yeah. Although that, that zero uh, number population are going to be really disappointed. You have to know exactly what you're asking for then. Uh, not available in... They say everywhere Apple Music is available except for China, Japan, Korea, and Taiwan. Why is that? I don't know. Yeah. Huh. Maybe... Like, music licensing and maybe those yeah. maybe those 5 million songs aren't available on Apple Music normally in those countries and so they can't mm -hmm. do a separate app maybe or they just haven't got around to finishing the localization off or something unclear Okay, but I mean at least it's now officially announced that solves one of their big outstanding promises to ship something right because we left 2022 with the promise of Apple Music Classical and the Mac Pro I would say as basically the two <laughs> the two the two bystanders They've now knocked down the classical front, and we'll talk a little bit more about the Mac Pro later in the show. Mac Mac classical, so Mac yeah. classical. <laughs> yeah, uh, this this was always going to get at least one more day of coverage, and for, for the launch, after you know, it got more than enough coverage for where is it? I think that was because it was sort of like AirTags. It was like AirTags were rumored for so so long. Um, this was actually announced when they did the acquisition. And then said, you know, next year, as in as in 2022, they'd 
be, be available. Um, and because of that, it got much more attention than it otherwise would have. It was always going to get attention on the release day, which is now. But because they've done the pre-order model, <laughs> where it's you can you can pre-order it on the App Store and it'll it'll install on your iPhone on March twenty eighth. It gets it's gonna have one more day in the sun before we we might never talk about Apple Music Classical again. Yeah, because Air Tags were obviously overhyped because of how long they took to come out and how much how long they were rumored for. But I do actually use Air Tags, right? Like sure. they're on they're on some of my stuff and. When I lose my keys, I make them ping and I go and find them. Uh, classical music isn't... I'm not going to be into that. So We will talk my, about it once more on March 28th yeah. and then I have no reason to bring it up again. Unless they do something crazy with it. But mm-hmm. so far, doesn't look like it. It's going to be huge on VR though. So no, yeah. no phone app, but huge on VR. <laughs> or no, no iPad app, but huge on VR. Yeah, I, and I'm sure that there's listeners in our audience who actually do care about this. And I'm sure... Like, one thing I'm curious to hear is uh, two things. What do Prime Phonic subscribers think of this? Mm. Because yep. it doesn't seem as it looks prettier, but I'm not sure it's as as in depth as Prime Phonic. Yeah, does it have all the features that Prime Phonic offered? I'm, I don't. Yeah. I don't know. Same. Yeah. And then, and then, if you weren't Prime Phonic, but you do care about app classical, does this scratch an itch that the existing app experience it did not for you? So, well, we'll, we'll hear what people think. Um, Apple Music Classical coming March 28th. Pre-order now before supply runs out. <laughs> Happy Hour This Week is brought to you by Headspace. The last few years have been a wild ride of emotions, stress, and tension, and that makes protecting and caring for your mental health more critical than ever before. Mental health plays a key role in our overall state of well-being. It's directly linked to things like fatigue, stress, problems sleeping, and more. And that all translates into how you live your life and your general mood. It can impact on your relationships, for instance, and all parts of your life. Mental health is essential. And Headspace helps improve mental health through guided meditations, breathing exercises, calm mindfulness. I've tried it out. It's great. It's really simple. You just download their app and it presents you with a library of sessions to choose from. They have long-running courses to follow. Or if you only have a few minutes at a time, they have short programs designed to be done on the go. That's what I like the most. Short bursts of mental refreshment to get you in the right Headspace. Headspace has the world's largest library of content with over a thousand hours of clinically proven mental health exercises. They have a wide range of teachers from diverse backgrounds and different areas of expertise. The Today tab gives you a schedule of sessions to do in the morning, midday and at night. And you can also drill down into a particular topic. For instance, I picked that I wanted to try to be more active and the app recommended an array of sessions due to just that, including workouts and even mental coaching sessions hosted by Olympic athletes. It's all really well made and designed. Headspace has helped me and more than 100 million people worldwide. They can help you too. Listen up, you do not want to miss this. We've arranged something special. For a limited time, all you can, all of you can try Headspace free for 30 days by going to headspace.com slash happyhour30. You won't find this offer anywhere else. You must use the link headspace.com slash happyhour30 to unlock all of Headspace free for 30 days. This is not something they normally do. Go now to headspace.com slash happy hour 30 thanks to headspace for sponsoring the show so i've been wrestling with my soundbar that i use with my apple tv and and xbox probably i mean since forever but especially since we've made the xbox something that we we have in the rotation uh in the family and uh dolby atmos and and arc uh support and changing inputs and everything it's just been bananas making the soundbar actually be the output for all audio from the tv um so what i did initially was hdmi out from apple tv into the soundbar and mm-hmm. then hdmi out from the soundbar to the arc hdmi 2 input on my tv and that was pretty reliable i mean you're dealing with arc and cec and everything so a lot of things can go wrong that, that, that often do go wrong but mostly worked well when I was using it for one thing. And then when I introduced the Xbox into the equation, I was couldn't quite figure it out. It was reliable with the Apple TV and then never worked with the Xbox. And the Xbox would just be another HDMI input. And this is for audio or just the CEC control? Or it's, for, it's, for, it's for audio output. Okay, so, audio output, yeah. Yeah, so initially it was like on my things-to-do list of like figure out this configuration and solve this audio problem and in the meantime i'll just 
have audio for the Apple TV with the sound bar and then audio for the Xbox will come to the TV and I'll use two different remotes to manage the audio um, just as sort of a half step measure before I figure it all out. And what I did was I, I tried, I, I took from using HDMI in on the Xbox or on the, on the sound bar, excuse me, not on the sound bar to just doing HDMI out on the sound bar to HDMI in on the TV with the arc channel uh, input. And then, having the Apple TV go right to the television and the Xbox go right to the television. And then for most things, it worked pretty good that way for both the Xbox and Apple TV. But I don't know if you see this on your TVs, but um, if you go from like non-HDR to HDR, like sometimes the screen will give you a little badge from the TV maker of like, now you're in HDR mode or something. And um, It seemed like every time that would change, you'd risk losing a sound output to the correct source. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times what happened was the TV itself would know that you're using arc for audio and that you've got, and the, the sound bar would know that it was supposed to be arc for audio. And, and what you'd have to do is like toggle through the different modes that the sound bar can do. So, you know, Wi Fi is like a wireless speaker, Bluetooth, um, optical input. If you're using, um, that, that output, and HDMI in, and then you'd see ARC as one of them sometimes. And and a lot of times, just toggling through was the solution. So then I added to my to my kind of deal with it until later routine of, okay, so I, I've got to use, sometimes I've got to use different remotes, and sometimes I've got to toggle through the modes on the soundbar, and then it'll eventually get right. And in the back of my mind, what I, all, all I could think of was like, at some point, I'm going to sit down, with someone else, like family or whatever, friend, whatever, and want to watch a, a movie on my TV, and I don't want to do this dance when it's when it's not just me being patient, you know, or frustrated on my own, and so I decided I'm just gonna just gonna try this out, remove the soundbar from the equation, which sounds better than HomePods because of the standalone massive subwoofer. Um, and it's a Dolby Atmos soundbar. Sounds sounds really good, but just it doesn't work reliably with the TV and the and the inputs that I have. So just try out HomePods as a, as a serial pair of HomePods, and then for the first time ever, try out the eARC feature, where it's not just your Apple TV output, but it's fixed to all of your TV output. So it would work then with the Apple TV, um, with I presume the streaming apps on the TV if I use those. Mm-hmm. With it, with AirPlay to the TV, and then most importantly with the Xbox as well. And so this past week, I've, I've for the first time I've been using HomePods stereo pair with the Apple TV, uh, and then eARC. So as the like everything on the TV's output. And I gotta say, so far so good. <laughs> it's definitely more reliable than different cable configurations and managing different remotes with the soundbar and, and, and arc. Um, there's a lot of added benefits to it. Uh, it's much cleaner to see like the, the two different home pods on either side of the TV stand below the TV. It does look a lot better than the soundbar from 2016. You know, you, at, at higher volumes, you expect, you, you kind of still get that really good bass at lower volumes. It's not there as much as it was with the subwoofer attached. Um, but there's other things like I can always control the volume with my TV or with Siri, not just with the remote, and I, and if I yeah, want or your to iPhone or whatever, yeah, ex- exactly, yep, yep. So that's pretty cool. I've got experience now with re- recently. I've, I've tried using Apple Music on the Xbox during gameplay, so I'll oh, launch okay. the Apple Music app. And this is when I had the soundbar in, under the TV, and then HomePods also in the room. I would try, you know, what is it like to do Apple Music on the Xbox? And play a game, like play Forza, you know, racing cars with your Apple Music in the background. And it's pretty good. I think the way that they've got that configured where you can do, you can, you know, obviously in a game, you've got control over sound effects and music and dialogue separately from anything else. Um, But Xbox at a system level and probably PS5 as well lets you control what percentage of the mix is the game and what percentage is the music. And there's really good system level controls for play pause skip etc so i found i found that to be pretty cool and it was just kind of nice 
even when I had HomePods in the in the same room, to do have the same output from the from the same speaker source be both the the like the mix of gameplay and Apple Music from the same output was pretty good. It made it feel like it was part of the game. It's like suddenly if you're in a racing game and they've got a radio feature, you can turn that off and it's actually your music that you want to hear. <laughs> Compelling. Um, but I also learned through this using the setup for the first time that you can still play music with your voice or a podcast or whatever through the HomePod stereo pair while you're playing a game on the Xbox, for example. So I don't know if this would work for Apple TV and like watching a movie. I guess not, but uh, at least on the Xbox, I was able to, to do gameplay and also ask Siri and the HomePod to play music, and it would be playing from not the Xbox music player, but from the, the, the HomePod itself, native music player, while also being the TV output. Uh, I thought it would be one or the other, but it turns out it can be both. So that's, that's very cool. And I have no complaints yet. I mean, the only thing that I'm really missing is, you know, have, having a, a massive subwoofer that you plug in separately, yeah. power separate from your, your soundbar. But I also wanted for the soundbar, I wanted to have rear speaker support. And it was limited to um, the soundbar is from 2016, an LG SJ9 that I've had for years. And it was limited to like three different models of LG speakers. One was like a pair of Bluetooth speakers, so not even like plug in all the time. I'm in for this. So if you wanted to go for, you know, you wanted to have rear speakers, it was just those specific ones. And I was, I looked last year at buying the ones that I needed to work for rear speakers with the soundbar. So glad I did not do that. But because they were discontinued for years as well, they were overpriced for. They were priced much higher than they than they were retail. And it was cheaper to buy a whole surround sound system than to buy those rear speakers off eBay or something. Um, so, like, the big thing, the big takeaway here for me is that eARC works really well um, in my setup better than actual wired-in ARC did. And that the big missing thing I wanted to do is have rear speaker support. And I, I did try before in a configuration like this where I did HomePods in the front, like big ones in the front, and then minis in the back. And you'd have to manually mix the level of output so that you didn't have too much in the back where it was overwhelming, where it was like actually a mix. And in, in those situations, you don't get like where you get stereo HomePod setups, you get right and left channels basically. But with rear speakers in a HomePod setup like that, it's it's basically mono. Yeah, it's mono. Yeah, when when if you're not in a stereo pair, AirPlay multi-room, which is essentially what you have to do to make that work, yeah. is just mono tool speakers because that's what it's actually designed for. It's not designed for doing 5.1 surround. It'd be cool if they can add like firmware to do, you know, you have two front speakers, you have two rear yeah. speakers with minis and you can sync them up and work together and they can do back channels and stuff. That'd be a great um, extension. But I do mm-hmm. think there's some concern in terms of like latency and stuff, although other surround sound systems exist that are all wireless, so it is yep, possible. Yep. It's obviously not trivial, but it is possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I hope they do that. Otherwise, I'm I'm definitely I definitely like the way it looks so much better. It looks really modern, <laughs> nice compared to the soundbar. Soundbar was like big, wide, and gray, you know, and just not very pretty. So I'm I'm super yeah. happy with this, and and like I said, you know, I miss having the 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 boomier subwoofer with, and it also the soundbar had different configurations. Like you could do um, movie mode, music mode. Um, you know, bass boost, etc. And Apple Music or HomePod doesn't do configurations like that. I did try also the reduced bass feature. That's dramatic. It works if you need if you need to do that. It's it's a that's a great addition of a feature. Currently, I don't have to do that, fortunately. But yeah, I, I think the TVOS sixteen point three changes actually helped a lot with using HomePods as TV speakers because mm. it's true that that update did reduce the bass a bit, but it also made the vocal tracks like way more prominent. And most of the time, if you're watching um, like TV shows, you care most about the vocal tracks, right? And I've been using HomePods um, as my TV speakers since about September. And before, it would be fine, but it felt like the HomePods were still in like music mode and they would prioritize hearing like the ambience of the of the show when really you want to be hearing the people talking so you'd always have to like turn the volume up a lot more i found with whatever they did in that like you know update a couple of months ago 
the vocals are much more audible and i think at the expense of some of the bass and some of the background sound like you were saying if you turn it up mm. to like really high volumes that comes back in but at the lower volumes they definitely prioritize the um the vocal stuff more and just what kind of what's happening on screen generally is what you hear without even if it's a lot quieter so uh, in it's a it's a trade-off for sure but i think it actually works um for me at least like it it actually just makes it way more usable because you don't have to worry about like turning the volume up really loud just to hear what people are saying um, and in terms of latency, I found it to be pretty good. I'm not sure. Um, I think it depends on your Wi-Fi strength a little bit and your like room conditions. Some people have more troubles with it than others based on like just what I see online. Like some people say they use it with their Xbox and the latency is perfectly fine and perfectly playable. And then um, some other people do it and you know having to relay through from the Apple TV to the HomePods back to the speed, you know, back to the TV or whatever. Uh, that is a there is inherent some sort of inherent delay there. And depending on your network conditions and like just i don't know the room how much um interference there is it can have like 100 milliseconds delay maybe mm-hmm. and if you're playing games that's a bit more problematic um but it's not it's perf- like i found it in my own to be pretty good and your i think your comparison where it's like basically equivalent to a soundbar without anything extra so like you had like an extra subwoofer and stuff i think that's about right two two home pods side by side uh and you get all the benefits of them being home pods as well right like when the, mm-hmm. the tv can be turned off or in like standby and you can still address the home pods you can still ask requests you can still play music that way you can control it from your phone like you say but if the tv's on they just flip through them instead um and so that's the setup i've been using and i don't really have any motivation to change it out because um i'm pr- i've been pretty happy with it my my main gripe is not really about like the audio stuff it's just the way that the siri works when it's paired to the to the apple tv so mm-hmm. You would think, you know, a sane a sane person would think that if you've connected up your Siri receiving speakers to the Apple TV, everything you can do on the Apple TV Siri you could do. So basically, anything you can ask the Apple TV remote, you should be able to do by just asking the speakers that are paired to that exact same Apple TV. Mm-hmm. But that is not the case mm-hmm. because most of the stuff that you can ask the um, Apple TV to do via the remote does not work if you ask the home pods to do so you can be sitting there in front of the tv you do you know hello siri request to the home pods which and even if you say you know on the tv or whatever if you want to make it completely obvious even though they are paired together uh, it will say i can't do that for you basically anything that isn't like super obvious so you know play pause fast forward rewind you can do that through the home pods and there is some like you know search for blah or open app on tv you can do that kind of stuff but like, yeah. let's say the weather, right? The weather's a good example. Sometimes I'm just like sitting on the, on the sofa and you know what? I'm going to ask Siri on the TV what the weather's doing just because it's interesting or, you know, I just need to know. So you can pick up the Apple TV remote, ask it. It pops up in that little box in the corner. It tells you. You ask the HomePods to do it. They will, uh, It won't show on the screen. It will answer audibly as if you were just talking to the HomePod from across the room, right? So it doesn't... Like in that, in that instance, the Apple TV isn't doing anything. It's just like sitting there dormant. And then if you're trying to do more esoteric commands with the Apple TV, like playing live TV channels, because that's something that Siri supports. It's like, well, they have even a name for it, like Siri Live or whatever it's called. So you can say like, play BBC One. And if you say that to the Apple TV remote, it launches the BBC iPlayer app and it goes to BBC One and starts the live stream. And there's like, you know, however many supported channels in the UK and there's more in America and everything. But that's, you know, a pretty useful feature that I do on the Apple TV remote of, you know, non-trivial amount of times. You ask the HomePods to do that and they will say, I do not know what you're talking about. Yeah. And it just doesn't do anything at all. And yeah. so it's, it's, it's like, you know, while the TV is literally turned on, I'm on the input. The Apple TV knows that it's active. Any request that I ask the HomePod should just flow immediately to the TV and to be processed if they can't make it like independently support the same functionality just literally relay to the apple tv and then relay response back at the speakers like that's what i want to happen because it's so inconsistent um well it's consistent but it's consistent in its inconsistency right because yeah. now i know how it works and I, you know you figure it out you, you you're like oh if i want to ask this i've got to pick up the tv remote but if i want to do this i can just ask the air you know any other person comes around the house they have no clue what to do right they'll just right. do it and it will completely fall on its face uh, but I've figured it out. But it's, it shouldn't work that way. It should just be able to relay it back and forth. But in yes, terms of audio quality situation, I don't really have any complaints. It works about as well as you'd expect it to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The the situation with Siri is like, it's, it's Siri on the HomePod, even with paired with the TV, 
it assumes there's it, it assumes there's no TV attached to it. There's no screen, and you. I mean, it seems like it's very possible with them them to make adjustments to that. Where if the Apple TV is actually on and in the input, then then do that. If it's not on, because I've seen where I can play the Xbox and use Apple Music with the HomePod, and the and the Apple TV light won't be on on the box itself. Yet the HomePod's still working as the TV speakers and Apple Music is playing and it's playing sound from the game. So that I, I'm kind of impressed by that. Um, and if your Apple TV is on and you're on that input and you play music, you'll, you'll oftentimes get where you know, it takes up the music app and plays. You know, will show you the visualizer and the lyrics and mm-hmm. everything. Um, and if your TV is off, it won't do that. It'll just play music normally. So there's like some consideration for is the TV attached and, and are you on that input or not? Uh, but you're right in that you know you can ask the remote play live TV and and you, you can't do it with the, the Siri HomePod, um, and that's annoying because Amazon makes these Echo speakers where they've got the screen so the Echo shows, and a service like Hulu with live TV, you'd be able to say play a station that's offered a channel that's offered on that service and it would do it all hands free on that screen and. Even on the Apple TV, there's no support for Hulu Live TV in terms of Siri control. There is for Fubo TV and then certain um, of the cable-specific apps. And I did I did try like watch ESPN Live as a Siri input on the on the remote, and it would ask me at first, do I want to open the ESPN app or the Fubo TV app because it was a channel on that app. So it's just like it's possible, just Hulu hasn't done the work there. Um, but yeah, that. As they show this second generation HomePod more and more in marketing, it's harder to find a photo of it like they're using without it being next to a TV attached to a TV. They're they're really leaning leaning into that. These is TV, you know, this is TV speakers um, this time, and it's like the software hasn't quite caught up with that as much as they've done great software features like eARC, for example. Um, it it's the way Siri listens and and responds to you that needs to change because we all want. I, 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 we would all really like an Apple TV that has Siri built in that you just talk to without having to press a button on the remote. That would be great, but we, we can't do that. Even with if you attach HomePods as your your dedicated TV speakers with that Apple TV, so room room to grow in the future of TV OS and HomePod OS. But yeah, HomePods as raw speakers, not bad in my experience. Not bad mm-hmm. at all. Happy Hour this week is also brought to you by Ladder. If you're anything like me, you have a tendency to put things off until the very last minute. Stuff like dentists, opticians appointments, filing taxes. And look, it's usually fine, but you shouldn't mess around and wait when it comes to life insurance. Get term coverage life insurance through Ladder today. Go to ladderlife.com slash happy hour to see if you're instantly approved. I've started needing glasses recently, and that was kind of a moment that made me dawned on me a bit. Like, I'm getting older, and stuff like life insurance somehow feels immediately more relevant. Life insurance gives you peace of mind to know that your family will be taken care of if the worst happens. Ladder is a 100% digital service when you apply for $3 million in coverage or less. That means no doctors, no needles, and no paperwork. It's all done online. You just need a phone or laptop to apply. You fill out Ladder's application form, and their smart algorithms will work in real time and tell you instantly if you're approved. And Ladder has no hidden fees, and you can cancel at any time. Get a full refund if you cancel within the first 30 days. And Ladder's policies are issued by insurers with long, proven histories of paying claims. And Ladder's customers rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot. If you've been thinking about getting life insurance, Ladder is the place to do it. If you aren't sure but you just want some more info, go on Ladder's website, fill out their online calculator, and you can see the costs and terms of the plan with no commitment. And as the cost of life insurance goes up as you age... Now is the time to act and get it done. So go to ladderlife.com slash happy hour today to see if you're instantly approved. That's L-A-D-D-E-R-L-I-F-E dot com slash happy hour. One more time, ladderlife.com slash happy hour. Thanks to Ladder for sponsoring the show. Next up is the iPhone 14 and 14 Plus news this week. I don't think this had time to make this show last week when it was rumored. Is that right? At any rate, this was rumored before. It was it was uh, one to two reports that said that um, in the coming days, Apple will announce a, a new color of iPhone 14 and iPhone 14 Plus. It will be yeah. Yellow. I think that was like the day after we recorded. Yeah, last week. I think so. Yeah. yeah. And uh, sure enough, this week came around and was it Wednesday. Uh, they announced the 
yellow iPhone 14 and iPhone 14 Plus is available for for pre-order on this Friday and available to ship next Friday. I think are the, I think are the right dates. Uh, no no new model of Pro phone for 14. Even they they did. Maybe we did discuss this because I'm not thinking about it. We know that they did release colors of the 14 Pro or excuse me, the 13 Pro. They, no, this definitely this definitely kept broke after after. I oh, okay, so this was all yeah. conversation in Slack then. Yeah. But at any rate, they've gone back and forth on do they do a new a Pro color this year or not? But they they're consistent on doing a six month in new color of the non Pro phone of that year. Uh, yellow is not a new color to the iPhone. It's it's. It was there for the 11, I think, but this is it for the. This is the first time it's come to this iPhone design. Um, so, you know, 14 Plus is new, so obviously the first time it's been in a large screen phone like that, but it, uh, as well. And they've done new case colors and band colors for. I think they did four new case colors and a few new band colors for the Solo Loop and Sport uh, bands, and then the. Hermes bands. They've got a new whole new style there. There's like four different colors in boxes. It's like a, <laughs> inspired by the jerseys that you wear on racing horses. Is, is oh, there. obviously. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. So yeah. What do you? Well, hey, what are your deep thoughts on the yellow iPhone? Oh yeah, it looks alright. Yeah. It's not. It's not my color. It's. No. It's okay. It's surprising they didn't do a pro model as well because the last few years they have done colors yeah they don't like spring they, refresh they, they do colors for base and colors for they pro, did green but... and darker green right yeah <laughs> and the thing is this year if they're doing yellow all well, the kind of to yellow and iphone might look more like gold anyway and yeah that's why true. bother like but they've got gold, but... but they could have done a different they, they could, could have done a different shade <laughs> or something they could yeah. have done a champagne color that's even lighter than gold but... yeah but they didn't so here's yellow i mean i don't know how many people buy like i don't know if anyone like Everyone always frames it as, oh, Apple's going to get a little sales bump in the spring by refreshing with a new color. I'm not sure for the iPhone whether that's true. Like, maybe people walk in the shop now are like, oh, it's a different color. Maybe I'll buy one now. But I don't think it's a huge onslaught of people who are like, now it's in yellow, now I'm going to buy it. Like, people buy the iPhone year round, right? Obviously, there's a there's a rush and a surge in the holiday season when the phones come out and when it's near Christmas and Thanksgiving and stuff, but... You know, Apple's selling millions, a million phones a week almost, right? And the time comes around, you go in the shop, I guess it says new color yellow and the, the carrier stores get to pop a bit of marketing and stuff that wasn't there before. So maybe it helps a little bit. But I think some of it's just like Apple wants to freshen it up and here's a new color and there you go. You know, like I'd, 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 obviously they're never going to release the sales charts, but I don't think you would see a big spike in, in a graph if it was there. They just are in this trend now of every few months here's a new colour and it's like oh here's a colour and they get to go alongside with the, with the bands refresh and stuff I was interested there was no Apple Watch Ultra uh, band changes yeah it's not surprising that there's not like a new type of Apple Watch Ultra band but I was disappointed that there's not a like a fourth colour for the Ocean Band or the uh, other two bands that they've got so it's kind of disappointing there yeah well that's the yellow iPhone that's the, the yellow iPhone the one, the one bit of news that was buried in the press release for the yellow iPhone was the expansion of emergency SOS. Um, because, you know, just like we didn't have much to talk about with the yellow iPhone, neither does Apple. So their press release was like, it's yellow. And they were like, great battery life, you know, action mode. They're just re- recapping what they said in September and emergency SOS. But they did say that uh, by the end of the month, emergency SOS via satellite will now also be available in six additional countries australia austria sorry belgium italy luxembourg netherlands and portugal so that nice. that's nice that they're continuing the rollout uh it came out for me in the uk in like december uh, i think we must have mentioned it at the time because i tried it out and you know you do that test thing in the settings and it's like well if i ever get into dire straits this may be able to help me which is a nice peace of mind there's still the question of what happens in two years time when they no longer promise that it will be free uh, yeah. They haven't announced pricing. We don't know what they. We, we don't know what they're going to do there. Because that, mm. you know, I'm not. It's a cool feature, but I'm not sure I'd pay for it. Like, right, as an additional thing, I don't. I don't really see the point because the obviously it's going to save lives and it is critical. But statistically, that only happens because they sell millions of phones. Like 99.9 percent of people that have an iPhone 14 will never need it. So 
paying for it every single month isn't really my bag. Like, I'm not a big uh, on that kind of stuff in general. Yeah. So if they roll it into, like, Apple One or something, that would make more sense. But they're still remaining quiet. I, don't, I think, honestly, they just haven't made up their mind yet what their pricing model is going to be. So sure. Yeah. It's just free for a bit longer. To, to me, the Apple Watch cellular plan is like that just-in-case insurance backup thing. And that's, you know, $10 a month or $12 a month already. And so to have this on just the phone and it doesn't even have the benefit of like giving your watch standalone capability, uh, less so. And But maybe if you're doing certain activities all the time, then it makes sense for you to, to do this. Um, I know Apple prepaid for several, several, several months of service for the uh, satellite provider that, that handles this for them, um, which relieved the company of a lot of debt that they needed, they needed to raise money outside of um, this already and so apple kind of helped them out in a big way by giving them like i don't know 250 million dollars or something like that for as paying ahead for, for their you know their, their arrangement uh, but as you and they also did the 400 million dollar um, investment which was you know just free money from apple to the company um, th- that was part of their u.s investment pr yeah i but, think it was kind of free but there's like they get something in return for it like i sure. think that i think that 200 million is actually included in that 400 million number there's there's a bit of um, financial trickery going on there, but yeah, yeah. they they got, they paid up front basically rather than to help the company out and to get a deal rather than paying like yeah. fifty million a year, how much it actually cost them. Uh, but I do we, think they're going to want to charge something for it. It's just trying to work out. Yeah. yeah, it's just kind of work out if it's going to be separately or as part of a bundle or something. Yeah, I mean it's obviously part of the thing that sells the iPhones, but um, I don't think that they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on this ongoing service cost. And then they're just going to say that's part of selling iPhones, you know? It's yeah, like, like maybe in two years' deal. time, they've expanded the feature. So via satellite, you can send just text messages, you know, so it's not just SOS only. And then it makes for a more compelling sale as just a standalone item, you know? Sure, yeah. Uh, but that's, if, that's if, a problem for two if years you could, now. If you could call it service when you don't have service, you know, if you're in those dead zones... And you and say you, you'll never be in an area where you won't be able to get a phone call or send an, an iMessage even. You know, that'd be, that'd be great, more compelling. So, I agree with you there. Um, iPhone 15, we've got a new report out, and I know has a new report out about the type of mute switch and how that will work. This goes in line with the earlier um, reporting and then, and then our reporting as well that the volume toggles will be replaced with haptic feedback buttons. This is like, like a single button. I can't keep up with their own stuff even, but um, this new thing is that the mute switch will be will be what's called, quote-unquote, a pressing type, uh, and we, we assume haptic will be involved there, but at any rate, it's going to be some type of change from the way that the, the mute switch works right now, which is it goes back and forth, and it gives you haptic feedback whenever you um, mute, not whenever you unmute. Yeah, so the volume buttons, just to recap, because it has been a flurry of news recently. Sure. <laughs> so on the iPhone 14, you have two separate buttons on the left-hand side of your phone, right? One's volume up, one's volume down. For the iPhone 15, it's going to be a single unified pill shape. So the top of the button is up and the bottom of the button is down. Kind of like iPads used to be, if you think back a while. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember. The, um, the did Was the iPhone like that at some point? It might have been, but I know the iPhone 4 had separate buttons, but maybe the iPhone 6 had a combined rocker, but... Not for a while. We've for a while for a long longest I can remember. We've had separate volume buttons. Um, so with the iPhone 15, it's going back to a single button, uh, and presumably the press will be capacitive as everything keeps being rumored, and you'll have haptic feedback, and you have a different haptic for up and different for down. Um, it wasn't a hundred percent clear when all the rumors, like the end of 2022, came out about the iPhone 15 definitely having capacitive buttons, whether that would also apply to the mute switch, because obviously the mute switch. It's a bit harder to make haptic-y because it's not a push-in, push-out button. It's like you have to flick it up and down. Um, but what it sounds like is they're just going to abandon the flicky up and your down part. And it's just going to be a push-in button and they'll give you haptics. And, you know, when it's when it's uh, muted, it will have one type of feel. And when it's unmuted, it'll have a different type of feel so you can distinguish that way. Um, the haptic... Sorry, the, the mute switch has been like an interesting phenomenon of the iPhone for many many years because apple loves to get rid of buttons and the mute switches remain steadfast even though you look at the rest of the market none of the android phones have bothered to put mute switches on them so it's always right. been this like apple only thing which has always um been quite interesting to me just as a a fact of life because you know they had mute on the ipad and they got rid of it 
they, you know, on the iPad at one time, you could have mute or you could change it to rotation lock. And then modern iPads don't have any switch at all. They just got rid of it. But on the phone, it's, rem- it's remained. And with the capacity of d- redesign, I thought that might be an opportunity for them to ditch the mute switch entirely on the iPhone as well. But that didn't happen when we saw the CADs. And now we know that it's going to be just like a mute button. One thing this does allow for, which might be quite of a nice feature improvement, right now, obviously, the only way you can change mute on the phone is by flicking the physical switch because the physical switch has to depict the state of the mute, right? So if it's flicked down so you can see the orange indicator, it's muted. If you just change to a stateless button, you can also then allow the user to change mute with software. So, for instance... You could ask Siri to mute or unmute the thing. Mm. A feature you can't do right now because they can't move the physical switch up and down. You so could you automate it. it. Just a, yeah. yeah, so if you just change it to a simple button, that becomes possible. Yeah, you could automate it. You could have it be part of focus modes. You could have it. Voiceover accessibility. Could, voiceover accessibility, yeah. control center, like on the iPad. Because iPad was, was mute initially, and then people, there's kind of a debate where do you want it to be your mute or your rotation lock and then there's an option for that and they just took it all away and it was only in control center the equivalent of and then on android i think the standard is volume up goes up to 10 volume down goes down to zero and then you go one more down and it's it's like mute everything or i guess you mm-hmm. go from 10 to 1 and zero is like mute everything um and i don't know in the iphone like there's the, there were those stories around the, in the mid 2000 2010s 20 knots that were like iPhones going off and symphonies. It was like this is why the the mute button will never go away is because it's so simple that you can ha- it, you can visually look at your phone and mute it like in your pocket or your purse and and see okay this is muted now my phone won't go off uh, and that's sort of one of the just more like user friendly features of the hardware compared to Android phones. Uh, but yeah, this changed and and. I was a little unclear on the rumor, but and then even like our our, our source material, but um, and before this, I was thinking that it would switch from a toggle forward and back to a switch that looks almost like an iOS toggle switch, you know, where you get the green little circle that was like the iPads before, where it went up and down instead of forward and back as a switch. It was more of a button that went up and down, um, but in this case, it sounds like it's. Is a thing you can just click in or, or, or pretend to click in and it gives you different feedback based on which one you're doing. Uh, and the small, then the, the small other, changes of iPhone 15. Yeah, yeah, so it's a small change. And so in addition to the ability to control it through software, you also have to assume that the uh, a push-button switch is better for water resistance than a mute up-and-down switch and it's less likely to break. Because one thing I have heard... And from lots of people over the last few years, whether it's the 14, 13, 12, you know, going back to like the iPhone 7 or whatever, maybe even the original iPhones, the mute switch gets loose over time. And then it, then it like, you can accidentally turn it on or off in your pocket because it just loses the tension that keeps it in place. Mm. So if you change to a physical, simple, stateless button, that the chance for failure is uh, a lot less. So I see. I think I'm, 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 I'm open to it. I'm not, I don't think this is terrible. As long as the haptics feel nice, I think it will be a net positive change or well, maybe for this year it's, it's, for this year it's a pro thing too so mm. only pros can be trusted with this thing yeah but obviously this is gonna trickle come, down come, to yeah. all, all the phones eventually yeah mm-hmm. finally this week happy hour is brought to you by collide collide has got some big news if you're an octa user they can get your entire fleet up to 100 percent compliance how do they do this well it's actually super simple if a device isn't compliant the user is disallowed from logging into your cloud apps until they fix the problem. It forces someone to do the necessary fixes. It's a simple premise, but it works. With that idea, Collide patches one of the major holes in a zero-trust deployment architecture, and that's device compliance. Without Collide, IT departments struggle to solve basic problems like keeping everyone's OS and web browser up to date on the latest version. Without Collide, non-updated, unsecured devices can log into your company's apps freely because there's nothing there to stop them. Collide is the only device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication and it's built to work seamlessly with the Okta platform. The moment Collide's agent detects a problem, it alerts the user and tells them how to fix it. If they don't perform the fix within a set time period, then they're blocked out. Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% 
fleet compliance. Visit collide.com slash happy hour to learn more or book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash happy hour. Thanks to Collide for sponsoring the show. Next up, we have iOS 16.4, the third beta version of this. And there's an update to the feature that changes how you install betas and register your phone for betas. So um, the, the big thing here is that they're, they're, Apple's going from profile-based um, flagging your phone for beta versions to be available to um, making it Apple ID-based. And so if your Apple ID is, is a registered developer account with Apple, then you have the option to see the beta. Uh, and in this release, they've changed it a little bit to make it more flexible where it's not just the Apple ID that you use for your phone for like iCloud. It can be another Apple ID, which I imagine is good for teams and and just people who don't have the same Apple ID for both. Yeah, because basically yeah. on this beta, which was almost supposed to be a planned feature from the beginning, just wasn't ready in the first seeds. If you go yeah. to settings, general software updates, and you click on beta updates, below the toggles to choose to opt into the developer beta or the public beta, there's literally just, it says Apple ID, and then it says your email address. And if you click on that, you can sign into a different Apple ID, which applies to which beta updates are available to you. Because if you're, if you're a standard user who doesn't have any access to the developer program, that beta updates tab won't exist. So you can't use it. But if you're a developer and you have it, it shows up there. But many developers have a personal Apple ID that isn't enrolled in the developer program and they have a separate like business account, which a different email, which is enrolled in the developer program. And so in those situations, restricting it to only the installed like Apple ID you use for iCloud was actually inconvenient because then it wouldn't show up. So what they've done in this beta is there's a little separate login you can do which lets you basically enroll for eligibility into the developer beta by signing to a different Apple ID than the one that's stored on your phone. And this actually benefits me because I am one of those indie developers who has a separate Apple ID for like App Store Connect and managing the store and uh, you know the developer program. And then I have my personal Apple ID, which necessarily doesn't. But if you wanted to work around this, you could like set up your personal ID and log into the developer program as well. Because you, you don't even have to pay. You can just register it as a developer account or whatever. But it's so much easier now. They just got that affordance for you. If And, and this was something that people raised when the first beta of 16.4 came out. They were like, yay, no more profiles. But what about developers that have separate accounts? And sure enough, they've thought about that. So now it's just a nice little solution for that, which is good to see. All right. And then uh, last for the week, we've got some Mac news of what to expect for the rest of the year, it seems. Uh, first up is from Mark Gurman, who has the first report about a 24-inch iMac update. Right now we've got the original M1 iMac, which is a whole new design, so you don't expect much to change there. Uh, sounds like the only change we will see is that it skips the M2 generation altogether and goes to M3 this year. Sound right? Yes, because the M1 iMac was, what, spring 21 it came out. And even, like, an, a month after it came out, Quo, 95 Mac, Bloomberg... Others were all reporting uh, that they didn't foresee on Apple's plans a M2 update for the iMac. Um, for whatever reason, it wasn't getting that silicon generation. We were going to have to wait to M3. It just wasn't very clear whether the M3 iMac would be ready for 22, 23, or 24. And now, based on Mark's reporting, it seems like it's roughly scheduled for the end of the year. So full 2023, we should see a... M3 iMac update with basically the same chassis design. I think Mark mentioned minor tweaks, maybe, but nothing like crazy. Like the the forehead and the sorry, the chin will still be there. The overall design of the thing will look the same. It will just get the spec bump for the M3 generation. Um, and he says that's for the fall by the end of the year, uh, which kind of puts a time frame on the M3 cycle starting at some point this year maybe in the fall maybe sooner and that kind of leads into the rest of the reporting which german says he expects within the next three months uh so basically i guess march april may june so including wwc i guess if you've been charitable so between now and wwc there's going to be a update to the mabbook air uh the mac pro we've been waiting for and the 15-inch MacBook Air is apparently all scheduled to come out soonish, within the next three months or so. And so if you take them in turn, the Mac Pro, we know, is going to run on M2 Ultra, or what we 
assume is going to be Bran M2 Ultra. I guess they could theoretically go way off piste and call it something else, but it's the M2 Max chip, but doubled in GPU and CPU. That's been much discussed before. They were aiming to do a quad Max, and they failed, so now they're just doing the Ultra. And that's on the M2 platform. It's not an M3 chip, M3 architecture generation. Um, obviously, that was meant to come out last year, got delayed, hence why it's a bit of an awkward timing, but it's coming out. Whatever. So finally, Mac Pro's going to be around. Great. MacBook Air update. The M2 MacBook Air only came out in the summer of last year. So they probably don't have much to rev it with if it's not an M3 chip, would be my intuitive logic. Mm. So that kind of implies M3 generation is going to start in the next three months. Mm-hmm. And then you have the 15-inch MacBook Air. If that's also coming in the next few months, most probably it's got an M3 chip, because why would it not if the MacBook Air update also has M3 in it? Mm-hmm. Um, unless there was some crazy scheduling problem and Apple was like super delayed, like they have done with the Mac Pro, but it doesn't seem like it. German wouldn't be drawn in his newsletter about what chips they have, but fortunately, we had an uh, exclusive 95 Mac that confirmed indeed both the 15-inch MacBook Air and that MacBook Air update are M3 architecture. Mm-hmm. Which probably um, means the June WWDC announcement. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think maybe if you if you want to be crazy, I could see them announce the Mac Pro before WWDC. The Mac Pro well, before? Yeah. Like, like April maybe, you know, like May. Because sure. if they wanted to separate, if they wanted to cleanly separate the M2 and the M3 generation, they could do that. I don't think in the scheme thing Apple really cares about that, especially when you're comparing like the high-end niche pro product yeah. to like, the main consumer stuff. It's not as much of a factor. But... If WWDC is not going to be like back in the old days of WWDC where they've got 5,000 people, 5,000 avid developers in a room, the big applause you get from announcing the Mac Pro on stage, isn't, that that factor isn't there as much. Mm-hmm. And so if they want to ship it in April, like at this point, we know it's late. It's, it's, they just want to get it out as soon as they can. That'd be maybe my mentality. So if that comes out in April or May, I wouldn't be surprised. But I, in my personal headspace, are allocating the M3 announcement with, alongside a 15-inch MacBook Air and the MacBook Air update as being the June thing, which would follow on because last year at WWC, they announced the M2. So on that basis, kind of aligns up. And last spring, they announced the M1 Ultra, right, with the Mac Studio. Exactly. Oh, yeah, good point, good point, yeah. yeah. So indeed, in, in, in next month, we could have the M2 Ultra. Yeah, yeah. yeah that would be clean, nice and clean. Uh, the iMac... So if you just go to M3 and you skip M2, at least one thing you're going to get going from M1 is that you're going to have the option to go up to, what, 20, is it 24 gigabytes of RAM? From yes. 16 yes. As, the, as the peak amount. So 24 inches of display, 24 gigabytes of RAM max. We don't know if that'll change with the M3 or not. Uh, so far, the higher RAM capacities have been for the Pro and Max and Ultra versions. Uh, we also don't know from this if, if there would be a version of iMac that has more than just the base M chip. So if there'd be a Pro mm. version there, possibility? We don't know yet. Um, we we do know from the past that you know as the iMac Pro went away, there were no imminent plans for an M-based iMac, uh, even a larger version or higher-end version. So that's, that's time-ish on that to be true, <laughs> that it was not uh, on the horizon as a replacement. And they... they, they, they did not wait until they had a new iMac high end to take away the Intel iMac 27 inch model. So um, that's all just sort of out in the open there. And then for the MacBook Air, they don't do a Pro version anyway yet. That's sort of the difference between an Air and a Pro MacBook anyway. But for the 15 inch version, I know people are, they kind of want there to be a Pro version at least for the 15 inch version. I, I wouldn't guess so. I'd guess it would be the same chip configuration as you'd have on the on the 13-inch version, it's just the difference in screen size. And- yeah, I, I think it's going to be exactly the same as the 13-inch, just with two inches of screen. Yeah. yeah, this is the fanless Mac still. And, and and you know, it's such a clean uh, cutoff between what is an Air and what is a Pro machine. So, yeah, I, I think the, the worst news that came from this week from our reporting is that there does seem to be another 13-inch MacBook Pro that will have it. That you're going to do an M3 version of that. So this won't be the year that the Touch Bar uh, MacBook Pro uh, goes away. Maybe the Touch Bar goes away from it. That's a that's a possibility, I believe. But 
just that there being that 13-inch old-design MacBook Pro that isn't the proper MacBook Pro 14 or 16-inch, I think that will still exist, and there'll be an M3 version of that, even though there's the 15-inch MacBook Air. I guess they, it's they, price, but that's a price point thing. Yeah, they, they, they still want to hit that price with a Pro machine. Yeah, at least a pro label, like pro, the pro label. Is, the brand is such a is such a big factor when you're talking about like mass orders. Like a company yeah. is ready to refresh their lineup, and you tell them, even though it, even though on every metric, getting the MacBook Air would fit their needs over because they, you know, before Apple Silicon, they would all have to get probably 13 inch MacBook Pros. It's, it's just a reality, and uh, they liked having you know the, the the pro name, the black glass, the bezel. You know, it would look pretty, right? Um, along comes Apple Silicon, the base model 999 MacBook Air is fulfilling everybody's needs in practice. But if you're a business, there's just a stigma to it. It doesn't happen. You want to upgrade to basically the exact same product you already owned. And until they can get the price points low enough on either the MacBook Air or the 14-inch MacBook Pro, that 13-inch uh, old design MacBook Pro with touch bar or not, was just going to carry on being around. Just like they had that MacBook 101 model for donkey's years as well back in the day. And they had the base model iMac with a spinning platter hard drive for way too long. That's the modern day equivalent of that particular laptop. So It saddens me that um, it's not going away, but it doesn't surprise me. Yeah, same same here. (laughs) All right, that's the Happy Hour podcast for this week. Uh, If you enjoy the show, please follow... Uh, in your favorite podcast app or subscribe in the Apple Podcast app to get the ad-free version. Uh, we appreciate everyone who listens, who supports our sponsors. If you have any feedback, you can email Benjamin and I together at happyhour at 9to5mac.com. You can follow me on Twitter at ApolloZach. Benjamin, you're on Twitter at... A- Wait, I've, I was about to say A-P-O-L-L-O-Z-A-C. Uh, that, is your, <laughs> that is your handle. I'm BZA Mayo on Twitter and Mastodon. Thanks for keeping it fresh. <laughs> And we'll be back next week. Bye, everybody. (laughs) Bye-bye.